Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by Joy Reid, host of MSNBC's AM Joy and author of the book Fracture, Barack Obama, the Clintons and the Racial Divide. She discussed the role of race within the Republican and Democratic parties, the Black Lives Matter movement and the need for the US to reckon with its history in a discussion with Shorenstein Centre director Nico Milley. Welcome to the Shorency Center Speaker Series. My name is Nico. I'm the director of the center. Today's event is co-sponsored by the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation as part of their Race in American Politics series. And I must thank Leah wright Rigueur for, uh, for in- inviting Joanne Reed, our guest today, to campus. Delighted we could be a part of that. Before we get to what promises to be a compelling and engaging discussion, Joy is familiar to many of you as the host of AM Joy, which airs every Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. to noon on MSNBC. She's the author of a, of a book, the paperback came out about a month ago, called Fracture, Barack Obama, the Clintons and the Racial Divide. She's the former managing editor of the griot.com, and uh, she, uh, she, she really really kind of became a national, a recognized national name in her covering of the Trayvon Martin case. She has a long history in uh, media and in politics, and it's really an honor to have her here today, and I would be remiss if I did not note she graduated from an August University, Harvard, in 1991. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and family. Joy, I'm going to start. Uh, I I read your book over the weekend, and just it introduced so many significant questions for me. And one of the questions is that, uh, in some sense, the moment we've arrived at in this terrifying presidential race, I I had always I have I've been thinking about this president about Donald Trump as somehow kind of a, a natural progression of the lunacy of Republican Party politics and conservative media over the last mm-hmm. couple of decades. But one of the things your book surfaced for me is that it's also in some sense a natural conclusion of the Democratic Party's history over the last few decades. Yeah. And I wondered if you, that was, you know, you, you said at one point in the book, Demo- the Democrats cannot get this right. And, and if they don't get it right, we're all in real trouble. Mm-hmm. T- talk about that. Thank you. Well, first of all, I want to say um, thank you very much um, to the Shorenstein Center, to you, Nico, um, and to Leah. Where did Leah wind up? There. Oh, right in front of me. <laughs> I'm blind. Um, thank you for the invitation. It's really great to be here. Um, I haven't uh, been back doing anything that required me to think at Harvard for a really long time. So uh, it was really fun uh, to be here. Um, so yeah, I think to the point of your question, I kind of wrote the book because, in my mind, the Democratic Party is sort of conducting an ongoing experiment in um, America's racial future. Because the Democratic Party is the party of uh, of black folk, brown folk, um, of Asian Americans, and of um, white Americans who range, uh, who, have, who have more range in terms of their backgrounds than um, the white voters in the Republican Party, which is becoming a lot more uniform and a lot less like the country. Um, the Democratic Party absorbed the what had been the most challenging part of the democratic coalition which was the white south the part of the country that rejected the uh tearing apart of the system of slavery from the very beginning to the very end and fought it for a hundred years this idea that you were going to absorb black people into into the society into our neighborhoods into into families that idea was rejected so soundly by a small um, but very vehement part of this country that never caught on to that idea and never accepted it. The Democratic Party owned that piece of the country and then they were disgorged into the Republican Party. And so I think what Barack Obama kind of is, uh, what, what Barack Obama does is for the Democrats, he kind of is the natural culmination of forming a multiracial coalition, a multiracial political coalition that could produce a Barack Obama but he also produced an instant backlash to what in a lot of ways was a second reconstruction. 
um, this idea of having this person who's not only black but is a project of miscegenation. He is a he has a foreignness, so he he brings in issues of immigration, um, and he's elected by a coalition that overrules white people. He overrules particularly the white South, which soundly rejected him, and he still gets in. Um, and so, the, so the, the Democratic Party is sort of doing this working experiment that's worked to get them the White House two times. But now they have to govern with a coalition that is still has challenges within the different groups. I just want you, because uh, I know we have a lot of students in whom are not from the United States, to explain what you mean by second reconstruction. So, right, so what you have is um, after the Civil War, which literally ripped the institution of slavery um, away from the South. Um, not because Abraham Lincoln particularly liked black people. He actually um, despised, in a lot of ways, um, black people and thought it would be better to take them all and send them back to Africa, right? He was somebody who was pragmatic. He said the, the way to punish the South and to force them to comply with staying in the Union was to say, we will rip your economic base away from you. This free labor, this massive free labor force that you have, we'll just take it away. We will say that these all these these uh, black slaves are free. How do you like that? And, and, and that was sort of a punishment. Once that happened, you had to figure out what you're going to do with these people. They are now um, citizens after the 13th Amendment is passed. You have to give them citizenship as they were very reluctant to let these people vote. What are you going to do with them? And so Reconstruction was this attempt to reckon with this uh, large population of former slaves. And it didn't last very long because the backlash against it, people like Pitchfork Ben Tillman, who has statues all over the South. It's one of the reasons I would have a hard time living in the South. Pitchfork Ben Tillman Boulevard is over here, and Pitchfork Ben Tillman statue is over there. And um, I, went, I remember going down to South Carolina and being put in the Ben Tillman, across from the Ben Tillman suite in a hotel, and I had to move because I just couldn't do it, right? So you had this violent reaction to Reconstruction by white Southerners who said, you're not going to do this thing where you make black people eligible to run for office, where you get two black United States senators, both out of Mississippi, where you have black people suddenly styling themselves statesmen and putting on a suit and deciding they're going to go down and be an attorney downtown. They want to go into buildings. They want to eat in your restaurant. This, this is something that a lot of the white South could not abide. They just couldn't handle it. And so you did have this backlash against the idea of giving, uh, of making black former slaves whole economically and socially. Um, it took a hundred years to work that out because the South so soundly rejected even the idea of letting uh, these new black citizens vote. And so that's why you wind up by the 1960s um, with this you know, wholesale push by black people for full citizenship. Um, when Barack Obama gets elected, it's kind of a second version of that. It's, it's saying to black citizens, you have, you have the ultimate badge of full citizenship, the ability to be the president of the United States. And, and think about the fact that if you're not from the United States, this could not have happened in England. It couldn't have happened in France. It couldn't have happened in Germany. The idea of a person who is not white becoming the president of a former slave republic is actually revolutionary. Britain can't do it. Right? If you, I mean, France, you could live in France for three generations and they'll still call you Moroccan if that's where your family came from. This is the only country that's allowed something like Barack Obama to happen. So I think that when, when, when he gets elected, the Republican Party has a choice. How do we respond to this moment? How do we respond to the former party of slavery, you know, having, one, having a black man be the president? One way to respond to that uh, is the way the Democrats responded to George W. Bush, who's seen as illegitimate, he's put in by the Supreme Court, but Democrats decide this is the will of, you know, maybe not the people, but it's the will of the courts, and we're going to live with it, and we're going to deal with this guy. Or to say this didn't happen, he's not the president, we're going to fight him like he didn't really win. He snuck in, it's a lie, we refuse to accept this reality that this man is president, and we're going to obstruct him like we did the civil rights laws back in the 50s and 60s. And they decided to do the latter, and I think this is where we are because of it. And they decide to encourage and, you know, encourage the idea that he's not born in the United States and right. he's illegitimate. Yeah. I mean, and it's partly because you have this notion that it can't have happened. Um, I, you know, I got out of pol uh, news media and worked in politics in 04 for being anti-war and a lot of other reasons. But one of the things that you saw in 2004 was this notion that Democrats were conspiring to deny George W. Bush a second term in president through fraud. That for, and, and this has been a running theme on the right, that they have, there's a right to rule notion in the Republican Party that grows partly out of the fact that the Democrats were the seditious party. Um, and so there's this right to rule notion that a Democratic president is, a lot, is in a lot of ways de facto illegitimate. Bill Clinton was illegitimate. He wasn't legitimately elected because he didn't get 50% of the vote. We don't have to work with him. He's not really the president. Barack Obama's illegitimate. He's not really the president. There's that notion. Kennedy, he snuck in. He stole Illinois. It's fraud. 
Um, and so in 04, you had this notion that ACORN, this small organization that started in Arkansas, um, who, whose job was to register voters, was really just committing massive voter fraud and had sending impersonators into the ballot box. And that even if George W. Bush had not been legitimately reelected, Republicans were prepared to say that John Kerry was illegitimate and that that election had been stolen by fraud. They were laying the groundwork for that during the election of saying ACORN is committing massive fraud. And then, of course, they punished ACORN for existing and basically wrote them out of existence by taking away their federal funding. So you have with Barack Obama this notion that he didn't really win, he was voted through by fraud, dead people voted, Democrats committed their serial voter fraud, his election wasn't real, therefore we don't have to work with him. He's not the president, and he's not American, and he's not really a citizen of the United States, he's not even eligible to be president. And so this notion just sort of filters throughout the response to him, and it produces in a lot of the base of the Republican Party a sense that they don't have to respect the presidency as long as he's in it. And so anything goes. And they also were convinced, I think, through a, a true fraud, that if we just elect these people, this movement calling itself the Tea Party, they can overthrow him. They can stop him. And if we just get enough of them into the House and the Senate, they will stop him. Of course, we're not a parliamentary democracy. Forty Tea Partiers cannot stop him. And so the disappointment from that, the sense of, 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 of weakness on our side, these people, it's not because the system doesn't work. It's because our people are weak. They won't go at him on his birth certificate. They won't really fight him the way we would fight him. They won't say he's illegitimate. They won't repeal Obamacare. They won't repeal Obamacare. They won't just rip Obamacare out from under him. And so this sense that their own side was too weak to really fight him keeps building this rage on the right that eventually somebody was going to fill that need. And Donald Trump has filled the need. He exemplifies this sort of impotent rage of people who say, why do we keep losing to this man who is not the president and who shouldn't be there? Why can't you beat him? We want somebody who'll fight the way we want to fight. So when Donald Trump gets dirty, when he says he'll fight that woman, he'll fight her, the way we wanted you to fight him, it, it feeds a visceral need that Republicans themselves have created. And But I think part of the challenge here is that this is not just about the Republican Party, right? That on the Democratic Party side, uh, we were talking earlier, it's a remarkably weak bench. Mm -hmm. And that, um, you know, if you were to make a short list of Hillary's VP picks, you don't have a very long list. Right. Uh, and that... There was this sense that, um, uh, you, or in your book, you talk about since really the Civil Rights Act mm -hmm. uh, uh, and the Civil Rights Movement and the Voting Rights Act in 1964, there was this big realignment and, and that bold change that the Dem that LBJ advocated for and led the Democratic Party through mm -hmm. uh, has that somehow the Democratic Party institutionally has never gotten entirely comfortable with that. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at Lyndon Johnson, who, who signs this heroic Civil Rights Bill of 64, but they left out substantially voting rights because they couldn't get it through, right? They, they, had, they, they had to strip something out to make this thing go through. It was hard enough to get it through, even though they had a super majority in the House and Senate of Democrats. So they put it through without the strong voting rights protections. Then you have Selma happen, and they have to go back for another round. And LBJ can't believe he's being sent back in uh, by these civil rights leaders to go back and fight for it again. They go back through. He gets that through. They go back for a third bite. They get housing discrimination through. You have King literally going to Chicago and moving into a tenement to try to morally force them to do it. He does these three things. But what that produces in Lyndon Johnson himself and in the Democratic Party is this incredible sense of entitlement to the African-American vote. The sense was, we did these things for you. Your votes belong to us. So in 68, when Democrats from Mississippi come back and say, no, 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 we need these other things, they say, how dare you get that woman from Mississippi off TV. You can't ask for more. You, you, your votes are ours, and you can't take them anywhere else. You are in the Democratic Party. And so this sort of sense of taking the black vote for granted really starts back then. It starts with Lyndon Johnson himself, who feels a sense of umbrage that, that no matter what he's done, King still opposes the war. How dare you? oppose me on Vietnam, you know, King never gets invited back to the White House again after he comes out against the war. So there's this, Democrats have, have lived with this sense of entitlement to the African-American vote for a really long time. And because Republicans had to absorb the white Southern vote and absorb that sort of really um, white racially conscious vote, um, uh, as that happens, it drives 
other voters of color into the Democratic Party. So the Democrats have this sort of feast of riches, at least in, in presidential years, where now substantial majorities of both black, Hispanic, and Asian American voters are with them. And, and that gives them a, a cushion and a pad. I mean, we were talking in the earlier, apologies to the young lady who was in the earlier, I don't want to repeat myself, but you think about the fact that in 2012 at the reelect, when even at my job, most of the people who I work with in my profession were like, Obama's gonna lose. And I was one of the only people who said, no, 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 Obama's gonna win. And why do they think Obama's gonna lose? They were like, oh, black people are demoralized, yet they haven't got enough. And I'm thinking, you don't know enough black people. Right? I worked at the Grio at the time. I'm like, I work at the Grio. Okay, I'm telling you, we interact with black people all day long. Black people are not demoralized. They're gonna vote for him because he's Barack Obama, first black president, they're gonna back him up. Um, and, and, and in addition to that, Ron Brownstein, who was sort of my guru on these numbers, had put out his data already. The population gets 2% more minority every four years. So that you have 26% of the population is non-white in 2008, 28% of the population is non-white by 2012. That means Barack Obama only needs 78% of that 28% in order to mathematically eliminate Mitt Romney. The chances of him not getting 78% were zero because he was gonna get 96% of black votes and Mitt Romney's fulminations on immigration and self-deportation were gonna sink his Hispanic number under what you need as a Republican, which is 40. You need 40% of the Hispanic vote as a Republican to make up for the fact that you cannot win black voters. Mitt Romney got 27%. He got crushed with Hispanics. The hidden vote he didn't, that we don't talk about, Asian Americans who come in conservative who where I lived in Brooklyn used to literally physically fight black people. But black people and Koreans were as much at war in Brooklyn in the late 80s as black people and Italians. Okay, it, the, the relationships between the Asian American and African American community are terrible. They're terrible in California. They're terrible in New York. But when Asian Americans come to this country, whatever part of that world they're from, whether they're from Pakistan or whether they're from China or whether they're from Vietnam or, or whether they're wherever they're coming from, from India, because they're all in that same cohort, they see the treatment of black and Hispanic people as a line they're getting in. And they know that eventually that it's going to come to them, that this idea of being anti-immigrant will hit them next. So no matter how personally conservative Asian Americans are, and a lot of them are very conservative, they are voting Democrat because they're gonna vote for the anti-racist party. So, so you have with Mitt Romney a mathematical elimination before anyone ever started to spend a dime on advertising. Mitt Romney gets an historic percentage of the white vote, 59%, second only to Ronald Reagan, who got 66 in his reelect. He wins white Catholics, white Protestants, young white people, white people under 30, white women by 14 points. He wins every cohort of white Americans by not a little, by a lot. Donald, uh, Barack Obama got crushed with white voters in 2012, crushed. He lost white voters under 30, crushed. He got like 10% of white votes in Alabama and Mississippi, crushed. He won by five, almost five million votes. And the message that has sent to both parties to white America is that you are no longer the sole arbiter of who is the president of the United States. And this is an alarming thing for a lot of white voters. You can be overruled by people of color, but only every four years. Because when midterms come along, black, brown, Asian, young, check out. So you have this seesaw. This cycle. Uh, I'm going to open it up in a few minutes to questions from the audience, but I want to change gears a little bit and ask you about um, Black Lives, hashtag Black Lives Matter. But I kind of want to do it in a maybe a different context of sorts. You know, a few years ago, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a piece for The New Yorker about um, really about would it posed a question, would the civil rights movement have happened if Twitter existed? And he essentially argued it never would have happened. Hmm. That to that to confront, you know, oh. s that that kind of injustice and that and that kind of systemic racism and resistance required a deep well of relationships. Um, otherwise, otherwise you would you 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 wouldn't survive, mm -hmm. right? Emotionally and mentally, yeah. that you need you'd get too fatigued that. To, fight the good fight required kind of a intensity of community that he thought you'd never get through social media. 
And, um, you know, it's a provocative argument, a provocative way of thinking about it. He got, you know, the term clicktivism or slacktivism yeah. that, that as if tweeting will make any difference. Yeah. And um, I have thought about that essay quite a bit in watching the way, you know, cameras on phones have transformed the country's, I think, the, 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 the small de-democratic kind of discussions and, and reality of, of race and policing and race in communities more broadly in America. Yeah. And I just kind of wondered what, what, you, what you think about that, about where, where, where might the Black Lives Matter movement take us, especially in the post-Obama era, and what, uh, what role is technology playing in shaping these movements? Yeah, that's an interesting, <clears throat> interesting proposition. But So I, I think of it slightly differently, because I don't think of Black Lives Matter, um, the hashtag part of it, as being the equivalent of SNCC or the SCLC or the Civil Rights Movement writ large. Twitter and the social media hashtags are the TV cameras that King and John Lewis and company attracted to their protests. Meaning that the way the civil rights movement operated was to say, we're not gonna get beaten in the dark. We're gonna get beaten in the light. We're gonna get on our Sunday clothes so that we look like the most upstanding young people you've ever seen. And if they're gonna beat the hell out of us, they're gonna do it on television. We're gonna make Bull Connor and these, these white sheriffs act in the light of the full world's view, the way that they treat us when those cameras aren't there. We're gonna make the little old lady in Dubuque watch them beat us, beat the hell out of our children. We're gonna make the staid principled Presbyterian somewhere up north feel, <coughs> feel the shame of what her countrymen are doing in her name, essentially, as a white person. And so if Twitter existed back then, they would have all tweeted their beating. They would have tweeted the bludgeoning of, of their bodies and, the, and the, the brutalization of themselves. Back then, what they had to do, there were only three TV networks, and there were newspapers. You had to get those newspapers and those TV networks to come and watch you get your ass kicked and watch them beat up your kids and maybe kill you, that you needed them to come and see. And so what Twitter has done is it's taken that come see and it's made it global and it's made it instantaneous so that the body of Michael Brown is on your Twitter feed before it's even on the news. And so the, the come see and the shame, you're, you're making people experience it exactly the same way. But what the civil rights movement had that Black Lives Matter doesn't have um, is it had what you talked about, was that community. It was emerging out of the black church so that you had these ready-made communities which have always been the places, the only places where black people could organize under the guise during slavery of worshiping this sort of foreign god that was forced on black people when many Muslim slaves came to this country, right? Or, or people animist or whatever they were, but they came and they organized in these Christian churches. So that was both seen as a benign place to be where you could in secret organize yourselves um, and it was a powerful network where Baptist networks existed nationwide so that the, the kings of course no, it's, no, uh, it's no coincidence that most of the leaders of the church were met of the clergy because they had a natural organizational base they could operate from so what Black Lives Matter doesn't have is that organizational piece. The third piece that um, the civil rights movement had was it had a connection to power and it had, it had a group of people in the movement who could negotiate with power. I spent a lot of time um, uh, doing the book, sitting and listening to Lyndon Johnson's phone calls with black leaders. Mm -hmm. And this negotiation that they were constantly having over everything they did. Um, and sometimes King being willing to be the goat, be the bad guy, not the greatest of all time goat, but like the goat goat, you know, where, people, where younger people like John Lewis were saying, this is bullshit. Why are you sitting around waiting for this white man to give us freedom? We want our freedom now. And King was having to be in the position of saying, we need to slow down. We need to rewrite that speech. We need to you know, not march on Turnaround Tuesday. We need to kneel instead of going. I mean, like he was in the position a lot of times of being the sellout to a lot of these young people, the Lewises of the world, who were saying, this is not enough. So you had these sort of multi-tiered negotiations going mm -hmm. on, but you also had identifiable leaders you could kill. So one, somebody recently said to me, the smartest thing Black Lives Matter has done is there's no identifiable person. So there's not one or two leaders that the FBI can target 
Because if you look at what was done to the Black Panthers, the systematic murder of them, jailing of them, the sort of systematic way the government was able to come down on them and destroy them. I mean, you have DeRay, you have a few people that they know, but they're sort of part-time at it. DeRay's not a full-time actor. I mean, they're, they're, le they're sort of more dispersed, so you, you can't target them as easily. So that's kind of wily. But they also lack the institutional depth and breadth that not only that civil rights movement had, but that the Sharpton civil rights movement, which doesn't get a lot of uh, attention, a lot of notice, but it's the civil rights movement Barack Obama is most conversant with because he was mm -hmm. in New York. And what Sharpton was willing to do was the same thing, which was, I'm going to go into Bensonhurst after you killed that black kid and chased him into the street and murdered him, or you murdered Yusuf Hawkins, you murdered these young men. We're going to take black people into the Italian communities that don't want us there, and you're going to beat our ass on TV. Same principle. And that we're going to constantly negotiate and cajole with power and have a centralized leader you can target. You can hate me, but you better deal with me, otherwise you got to deal with them. You know, so they don't have that. Last week, uh, in this same session, last Tuesday, we had Zainab Tufeki, who's, a, who's a, a professor at UNC, but who's really studied uh, the Arab Spring. And she was she was talking about movements. Uh, she's talking about movements for change in the modern era mm -hmm. that uh, that have significant digital components. Mm -hmm. And she identified. I was just saying when you were saying that, she said she thinks one of her questions was whether well, the Arab Spring in some sense failed, right? Mm -hmm. And Occupy Wall Street totally. failed, <laughs> yeah. right? And and she was trying to understand what is it that leads to this failure. And she said that her argument was that there are three capabilities in 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 making change their movement, the broadcast mm -hmm. capability, the organizing capability, and then she said the political power That's capability. That's right. Absolutely. Which really plays into what you're talking about. No, absolutely. About. I mean, if you think about like, the Black Lives Matter has had some real successes. I think one of them is um, the ousting of the uh, district attorney, the Democratic district attorney in um, Chicago. Because if you think about it, one of the big challenges if you do electoral politics is this huge undervote when you go to down ballot races, where people go in and they vote for president uh, or they vote for the governor's race and they skip a lot of the down ballot stuff. You had one of the smallest drop offs. In terms of down ballot um, in 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 that race, where people actually really voted that DA ballot and, and ousted that district attorney as a direct punishment for her inaction on Laquan McDonald, that's what you actually have to do to make people change their behavior if they feel that their job is is uh, at risk. And to your point on the Arab Spring, one of the really interesting things that people haven't paid that much attention to, I've been pitching this story at work and haven't gotten it picked up yet, haven't gotten them to let me do it yet is the, the, the strong convergence between Black Lives Matter and the Palestinian Liberation Movement. Um, the co-founder of one of the earliest Black Lives Matter organizations, which was based out of FAMU in Florida, is a Palestinian. That organization, the Dream Defenders, is co-founded by an African-American and a Palestinian hmm. American. Um, the two of them are the co-founders of it together. Um, and there's been every year a group of Black Lives Matter activists who've gone to um, the West Bank and Gaza. Um, and you, you, you have this fealty between the two that when um, what was happening in Ferguson was going on, when that uprising was taking place, if you went on so on online and looked at what was happening in Gaza and the West Bank, they were all holding up Black Lives Matter signs. And, there, and there's a sense of uh, sort of, of indigenous solidarity that you're also seeing with Palestinians and the Native American movements in, in the Dakotas that are fighting that pipeline. There's also a convergence taking place with a lot of Palestinians sort of taking up that cause. And I've always wondered why particularly Palestinians never adopted the, the African-American model the way black South Africans did. Um, because remember, apartheid lasted into the 1990s, uh, and that country was, you know, similar age to this country. But their sort of version of slavery lasted a lot longer. But they eventually adopted sort of the Kingian model, and and I think the Arab Spring, um, the Palestinian movements would probably do well to sort of adopt more of the organizational and institutional models. Kind of makes me think of. I always thought the Taylor Branch. You should read Taylor Branch and Robert Caro side by side. Because then you'd get like the inside and the, the inside outside. inside and the outside. That's a great idea. I love that. Okay, we'll take questions from the audience. Any questions? I have many more questions. So if there are none, <laughs> I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Hi, uh, Joy. Thanks for coming to Harvard. Sure. Peter Staley. Um, Peter Staley, I'm one of the fellows oh, at yeah. the uh, Institute of Politics uh, this semester. Um, first off, I, I love your analysis on politics and especially how. Uh, Twitter may or may not have changed past movements and affect movements today. Um, uh, I, I've always looked back on ACT UP in those years as, uh, you know, what would have happened if we had social media 
and um, I'm filled with a dread that if we had six years before the movement really took off, <laughs> where people were dying on mass, if we'd had a Twitter to get the to get past the media filter, we may have sped up the response. So, um, it may have actually helped us. And, and same thing with the 50s and civil rights. Yeah. If this imagery had gotten to the public faster. Um, what can Black Lives Matter do now, um, do you think, for uh, building the organizational and the leadership structure to up their game to an even higher level? I, I, I think what they're doing is they're the movement of our time. I think they're doing remarkable things now. Yeah. But hopefully looking long term. Yeah, I mean, they, they are. And um, thank you for the question. It's interesting because I moved back to New York um, in 1988. Um, my mother passed away, so I went to live with my aunt. And I still remember seeing people, um, and at that time, everyone was so afraid of HIV AIDS. And so the big messaging problem is that people were afraid of the people, you know, and, and almost afraid to help them. And so you had this huge messaging problem that you had a population that wasn't that was sort of, you could see that you should have this incredible sympathy, but people were afraid to you know, do anything. And, and I think if you'd had social media, you would have been able to message faster and better. I agree with you, people died um, of apathy, basically. Um, so it's a very good analogy. Um, Black Lives Matter has to, in a lot of ways, um, a lot, well, I shouldn't say has to, but Black Lives Matter, in, in a sense, has rejected, in some sense, the earlier civil rights movement's models as being sort of old-fashioned because they're young. But they don't realize that like Julian Bond was them. John Lewis was them. He, they were Black Lives Matter. They were doing the same thing. Um, but what did Julian Bond and John Lewis do when they finished their years in the civil rights movement? They went right into politics. They ran for office. They act, uh, as a matter of fact, they ran for the same office against each other, which was kind of controversial. And that's why they kind of weren't friends for a while. But the point is, is that they understood uh, and you know, black activists going back to the or 19 teens have always understood that what you ha you you cannot make anyone love you, you cannot make anyone like black people, but what you can do is you can get yourself enough power so that that sheriff that hates black people can't be the sheriff, and that DA that won't prosecute the person who killed Tamir Rice won't be the DA anymore, um, and and that unsympathetic judge when we're, where we've decided to elect judges won't be the judge. And so the idea is that if you reject politics, as grimy as politics can be, and a lot of the Black Lives Matter activists are similar to the Bernie supporters in that they think politics is dirty and gross, and so they reject it out of hand. But if you don't participate in politics, politics is still with you. What is that saying? That if you, know, if you don't uh, act on politics, politics will still act on you. I don't remember if I'm saying it wrong. But they have to find a way to get their young activists. Look, the Democratic Party is starved for youth. It is starved for talent. It, you know, the average age of the truly activist Democrats is like 70, right? I mean, Hillary, I mean, uh, I mean seriously, Elizabeth Warren is 66. Right? Bernie Sanders is the same age as Jesse Jackson. They are 74 years apiece. This is not... A, a movement, that is not the way you grow a Democratic Party. There's not enough youth. If, if the Black Lives Matter activists would just all focus their attention on elections, on electing members of their own group and like-minded politicians, they would have so much more power. Because you have to both negotiate with power and put some of your people in power. That's the only way you can make real change. Hi, um, thank you so much, Joy, um, for your presence and for your, your insights. My name is Farai Bindan. I'm a Mason and I'm originally from Zimbabwe. My mother is South African. Um, we were political exiles from South Africa to Zimbabwe and then we became uh, economic refugees to the United States. So we've been living here for a while. My question, I have two questions for you. First is the Black Lives uh, Movement. Um, it becoming a, um, or at least attaching to a global agenda. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing a lot of, um, conflict are happening on the continent, um, yet I don't see uh, the uh, Black Lives Movement uh, taking on some of the issues that are happening, say for instance in South Africa where you have either the uh, fall, uh, fees must fall or the young ladies whose hair, yeah. uh, their issues with their hair. Um, and then um, the second question is what are some of the uh, lessons we can learn, and this is based upon the research that you have done, uh, in terms of unseating a lot of the rogue presidents uh, on the continent. Uh, certainly you are from the DRC, I'm from Zimbabwe where the president has been in power for over 30 years. Um, what are some of those lessons um, that we can, that people on the ground can begin to um, learn from? 
Yeah, and and as a matter of fact, uh, in my father's country, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, the government there did what Donald Trump threatened to do at the recent debate. They put his political opponent in jail, and that's what they do there, right? Um, I think on the issue of Black Lives Matter and global, sort of the global reach, right? So King, Martin, Martin Luther King Jr. Is a, was a full-time activist. This is what he was doing when he was, he was preaching, traveling from church to church. We didn't even have a church, right? He, and he was spending a lot of time studying global movements and sort of absorbing like Gandhian you know, tactics. And same with uh, Malcolm X. Malcolm X was sort of absorbed in the movement as a, is what he was doing as his profession. Most of Black Lives Matter activists are not professional activists on a full-time basis. Some are. Bree Newsom is an activist. She's somebody who that is what she was doing before Black Lives Matter is what she's doing now. Um, you have some of the Black Lives Matter people doing that, but for the most part, Black Lives Matter is sort of a movement that is sweeping up people who are, have a day job and are doing other things. So they're not spending all of their time doing that. And Black Lives Matter is sort of a roving movement that is loosely based. So it's hard to get a movement that isn't concentrated like that to move on things outside their own communities. A lot of these protests and Black Lives Matter eruptions are happening as another person dies, as another person gets killed. And even in the media, it's so hard to keep up with all the death, all the people who are being killed, that you're just sort of careening from death to death and from despair to despair. And it's hard to organize and even think about South Africa. I think of Bring Back Our Girls, which should have been a, a movement that swept the world. 300 American girls got kidnapped. This is all we'd be talking about, right? One kid, John Binet, we talked about for a year, which is horrible and tragic. But this is 300 people, 300 girls, teenagers. So I think that there's not a capacity and I think Black Lives Matter has decided for a lot of reasons, including the one I mentioned earlier, they're not targetable because they're not one thing. And they're also multiple groups. But I don't think they have the capacity right now to go global. On the, on the continent side, it's difficult because those are colonial governments that were sort of destroyed by European colonialism um, to the point where there's not a lot of good leadership. Um, and where the democratic sort of impulse isn't there. I remember my father, when he was alive, um, always confounded me that he was sort of a fan of Mugabe. He was a fan of, Zimbab of Zimbabwe because his attitude was Africans lost this continent. He took back his country, and it was almost like a Trumpian attitude where he was like, well, Mugabe's our guy. You know, he's, he's, he's a black man running a black country and telling the white people to get the hell out. He may be a lunatic, but he's our lunatic. He's our lunatic. So I think you have a lot of problems. Right. And so it's, that's a whole different level of conversation. I don't really know. But I think these movements, the Kingy and the really successful civil rights movements, they're very exportable. The tactics are exportable all over the world. Hmm. And it's really going to be up to young, these younger generations to create movements that can fix this all around the world. Hi, uh, I echo Farai's comments. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, my name is Caleb Gale. I'm a joint student at the Business School and the Kennedy School. Uh, my question deals a bit with uh, your, your brief mention of religious institutions. Um, and I'm curious from your perspective whether or not religious institutions have the capacity now with the Black Lives Matter movement to either enhance or nuance or even hinder the narrative um, and what roles you role or roles do you see religious institutions, specifically ones with a high concentration of blacks? Mm -hmm. um, what what sort of role do you see them playing, if any? It's interesting because so Black Lives Matter is a youth movement and young people in general are very disconnected from the church. Um, white, black, and otherwise are very disconnected from these institutions. But here's the irony. Um, when the Trayvon Martin situation happened, it wasn't the Dream Defenders who buried Trayvon Martin and eulogized him and organized the family. It was Reverend Sharpton. It was the church. It was these same religious-based uh, civil rights leaders. Go through all of the list of them. Uh, Michael Brown's family, um, the people who came to their aid and worked with them, it was National Action Network. It was, a, it was another religious-based, old-fashioned civil rights movement by the old Pope people who run civil rights movements. And that's how it's been with all of these cases, so that you have the old, fat, the old, you know, institutional NAACPs of the world, the National Action Networks, the institutions have the family, and the kids have the streets, and they don't work together. I mean, in Baltimore, it was kind of remarkable that you have, if you go into the churches, that's where the parents of the dead are. That's where the families are going because those institutions have the financial wherewithal. In a lot of cases, these are very poor people to bury their child. Simple things like, we can't bury him. 
right? That's being taken care of by old fashioned civil rights movements that don't really have a connection to these young people who are then in the streets, but they don't have the family with them in the streets. So you have these kind of disconnected things happening. So it, at some point, and there was a meeting in Baltimore where the NAACP Urban League um, and NAN met behind closed doors with some of the Black Lives Matter people. It wasn't, it was kind of tense. So unless you can find a way for these two to meet, you're always going to have this situation where they seem like one movement, but they're kind of not, and they're not really working together. And Black Lives Matter, because they a bit reject um, establishmentarianism, and there's a big rejection of the establishment by young people, which is just, you know, that happens every time. But um, you have to remember, SNCC worked with the SCLC, in part because that's where they got their money. Right, you know, SNCC, when they ran out of money, had to write to Dr. King. And so the old folks had to write them a check because that's how they got their money. They were college students, they didn't have any money. So, but at, so at the time, even the more radical younger movements were still connected to the older church-based civil rights movements. That isn't true now. And a lot of these churches have also gotten out of the activism business and lost a lot of that pastor credibility and lost a lot of their young people so they don't have a, a big enough youth contingent to go out there and organize. So these two movements, these generational splits are real and they're not helpful hmm. because it's the old people in church who vote. You know, they always say that if you listen to Kendrick Lamar, you're probably in Black Lives Matter, but if you listen to OJs, you vote. The OJs people are the ones who vote. We have one here. Let's do, Khalil, here, sorry. Muhammad, <laughs> I know who you are. <laughs> so I just want to, I want to extend the question just a little bit further, talk a little bit about Hillary. And uh, on this question of generational tension between Black Lives Matter or younger millennial activists and the old civil rights guard, because it seems to me it's precisely that generational tension that she has leveraged, uh, particularly in the primary against Bernie Sanders by sweeping the South in those early primaries, mm -hmm. particularly because of the uh, older black voters who vote as opposed to whatever. And so so how do you think about this in terms of looking into your crystal ball? You've got you know, advanced information, uh, you know, AP wires and things that are across <laughs> um, at MSNBC. But it, I think it's a real question because the, the young lady who was the Bernie Sanders a media spokesperson. Yeah, Simone, Simone. Simone Sanders. Brilliant. No relation. Mm -hmm. Just absolutely brilliant. And yet, she seems to have disappeared. Now, maybe she's out there, mm -hmm. but I'm not seeing her. And certainly, if she is, it's hard to find her. Um, but she would have been a perfect person for Hillary to bring into the fold mm. um, and try to bridge that gap. So how, how is Hillary herself helping or hurting this in a generational that's a great question. Um, and Simone has a, a deal as a contributor at CNN. Khalil, it's great to see you. Um, I think last time I saw you was at the Schomburg Center. Yes. Backstage. Yeah. Backstage of the Schomburg. See? Yep. Yeah, that's my reporter privilege. Backstage of the Schomburg. Um, so Simone got a deal at CNN, but she's, a, she's sort of an object lesson in kind of what the disconnect between generations that are in the Black Lives Matter generation, those are not. Now, Simone didn't strictly come out of Black Lives Matter. She sort of built that way, but that isn't quite where she came from, but she was sort of built that way. She got hired because Bernie Sanders, who was also an older man in 74, had a brittle dis, uh, relationship with Black Lives Matter himself. He didn't exactly, I mean, people sort of remember, misremember him as this Black Lives Matter advocate. The first time they confronted him, he got, he went old man on them, right? He got really grumpy and he was like, what? And then suddenly, the black members of his staff who couldn't get a meeting got a meeting. And that's how Simone happened. Because they had been trying to tell him, you gotta get black people. You can't have a movement without black people. You're you're running as a Democrat, right? You can't, it's not gonna work if it's just you, white you, people. I think though, you can't have a movement without black people as Trump has shown it, us, it, it's just it, in the Democratic just Party. Just not in the Democratic Party. And so Bernie eventually brought Simone in they, and they started to really do well among young black people. But South Carolina is an object lesson in exactly what you're talking about. Went down to South Carolina, covered it, wrote a pretty positive story for the Sanders people because they were knocking on doors. They had um, Killer Mike, who, by the way, as somebody pointed out, could Barack Obama have gone around with a guy named Killer Mike in 2008 and gotten away with it? No. Bernie Sanders could do it. Bernie Sanders is a white dude, right? So he could get away with that. So they're down there. Killer Mike is going to the barbershops. Every time he goes in a barbershop, people are undecided. He comes out of the barbershop. They're like, Bernie! He was very effective, right? He had Nina Turner, fire on the trench. She's out there talking. She's doing her thing, converting people. Great, great, great. The young people are feeling it, feeling it. Hillary Clinton went to every church. 
every black church. They already knew the pastor. They'd known the pastor for 20 years. Bill Clinton met the pastor back in 1980, whatever. Okay, Bill Clinton has been calling on him, and you know, Bill Clinton sings, lift every voice and sing with him every, you know, Mountain Luther King Day knows all the words, and Bill Clinton's there, oh, how you doing? I'm calling this Bill. You got to support And I mean, and he had that. And being on the Bernie people laugh. They're like, oh, you silly old people. On the day of the primary, there was a basketball tournament, uh, one of the largest black basketball tournaments uh, in the country, which takes place in North Carolina. So on election day, and the week, you know, days leading up to election day, the church ladies, Hillary's church ladies were voting. Bernie's black supporters were in North Carolina at the game. He lost big, or bigly. As Trump was he got wiped out. It was out. a disaster. It was a disaster. Because it turns out that passion is not the same as power. It turns out that fervor, fervor, remember Donald Trump, you say fervor, the way you talk fervor. Fervor is meaningless when it comes to political power. So, Joy, you're coming to us from St. Louis. Yeah. I mean, then what is. Your take, what, what, what do you think of where we're at in this election right now? Well, I mean, I think just to quickly finish, I'm, I'm, I'm going on too long, but I will answer that and I'll give you your answer. But to answer your question, Hillary Clinton, because she's a politician, there's a lot of score settling. So Nina Turner isn't getting anywhere near that campaign. Simone Sanders isn't getting anywhere near that campaign. Prominent Bernie people are done. Hillary Clinton will not accept them. It is the, it is the big problem of politics. Score settling is real. Those people aren't getting anywhere near a Hillary Clinton administration. They're going to be the new uh, Tabitha Smiley and Cornell West. I mean, and Cornell West. That, that is really happening. But, she, but that is a bad idea. They should be absorbing these young movements. And Hillary Clinton has a very a big eagerness to absorb Black Lives Matter and work with them. So I think she will be pushed to do it. And I think that she's going to try to pull them in, but not the prominent Bernie Sanders people. And that's a problem. Um, but on, to your point, I think right now we're looking at Hillary Clinton skiing downhill. She knows she's going to win. That's why she was so cautious at the debate. She didn't try to make any waves. She's winning right now, big time. Um, Donald Trump is heading for a pretty catastrophic uh, November 8th. Uh, the bottom is dropping out of his white support, and that's where his big problem is. He, In our poll, he's down 10% lower than where a generic Republican would be right now. He should be in a two-way matchup. Should, he should be at least 48%. He's at 38 in our poll, which is catastrophic. He's losing white women. Democrats never win white women, and they are winning white women right now. Um, particularly white college-educated women are going for Hillary Clinton by a huge margin, double digits. And white non-college women are slightly tied, slightly leading her. So that's, that's it. That's the end of the game. It, 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 Republicans always hold white women. If they're not holding white women, they're, they're going to lose. Um, so I think where we're headed is for the big question to be, what happens to this angry core that is the Trump core. Where do they go? What do they do? And I think the the big uh, um, what is the other what is the opposite of beneficiary? The victim, the primary victim of their rage after November eighth is going to be the Republican Party. They're in for a civil war of epic proportions. No, not even after. It's like yeah. right now. Like this morning on Twitter, yeah. like he was tweeting at Paul Ryan. Yeah. Okay, we have time for maybe one or two questions. We'll go. Uh, Back here, and then on this side, yeah. Is there going to be a Democratic civil war? Is there, are the Democrats realigning? Yes, there's going to be a Democratic war, too. Um, after the election, um, you're going to have the lame duck session, which is my favorite thing in the history of everything. I love lame duck because I love the wonkiness of it. But the lame ducks are where big things happen. It's where Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. Um, it's where they finally made that big deal on taxes. Like, the lame ducks are actually pretty significant. Um, the um, the The... Nancy Pelosi lame duck goes down in history as the second most productive period in legislative history after <laughs> the 1960s. It was incredibly productive, the Star Treaty, everything. So this lame duck is going to be where the Democrats start to fight, and it's going to be over TPP. The trade fight is coming. Democrats disagree fundamentally on free trade. Hillary Clinton is a free trader. Don't believe her when she says she's not for TPP. She totally is for it. Barack Obama is 100,000% for TPP. And they're going to fight over this. And Hillary Clinton's going to have to be against it because she promised she'd be against it. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are going to wage World War III to stop that bill from going through. And it's going to be interesting because this is going to be the Democrats fighting. And then I think the Democrats, not only on trade, are going to fight. Um, um, that's going to be their primary one. But you're also going to have a big civil war internally over this uh, Supreme Court justice. Because I think Republicans are going to suddenly wake up on November 9th and realize, wait a minute, Merrick Garland is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you really think Barack Obama has the right to appoint? You know, it's only fair that the President of the United States that's there now, not the next one, the current one should appoint. We love Obama. And Do you think Obama would draw him? No. Barack Obama, I mean, this was not a head fake. This is who Barack Obama wants on the court. Barack Obama made personal calls to civil rights leaders to support this nomination. He wants him on the court. And I think you're going to see a lot of pressure from African Americans primarily for Hillary to ask him to withdraw and to put a woman of color or a woman or, something, or somebody that's not a white man on there. And I think the White House will resist that. And I think that Hillary Clinton will probably back down because she doesn't want that fight in her first 30 days. Mm-hmm. Or that for, you know, So I think you're going to wind up with Garland probably on the court because Republicans, I think, will suddenly move that nomination in the lame duck, and that'll be a fight for Democrats. All right, um, my name is Malcolm, and I'm a MPP student here at the Kennedy School. Um, I have two questions. My first one pertains to what you were saying about um, the Democratic Party feeling entitled to the black vote. And I was wondering if you think that um, the black community in the states has held the Democratic Party accountable enough um, for prioritizing um, black issues within the Democratic Party. Yeah. And my second question is um, whether you think the media has used um, race as a means to divide Americans and distract for, um, from other important issues such as um, TPP, for example. I mean, I haven't like heard much of that um, yeah. in the media at all. And yeah. Not implying that um, the, the media shouldn't be talking about race. I think that's absolutely like a, um, mm-hmm. you know, a, a critical issue, but whether or not you think that um, the media is is um, utilizing issues that are more divisive or Americans are divided about to distract from other Yeah, good question. So so I'll answer the first question with a, sla- a story, but not a long one, I promise. I'm very worried about it, not too long. When um, the Civil Rights Act uh, was in danger because you had 19 core uh, Democrats in the Senate refusing to vote for it because they were segregationists and they had signed the Southern Manifesto in the 50- 1957 and they were just not going for it. Um, one of the phone calls I listen to as I'm doing the book is Lyndon Johnson picks up the phone and he calls, uh, I don't want to misquote who he called, but he starts making phone calls to African-American leaders. I think this one was to the head of the Urban League at the time. And he says to them, this is what I want you to do. I want you to call Everett Dirksen, who was the Republican senator from Illinois. And I want you to tell him that you will deliver him the black vote in Illinois. Now think about this. This is a sitting Democratic president who says to African-American leaders, call this Republican senator call his office and tell him you will get black people to vote for him for re-election in Illinois. So the idea of leveraging the black vote to make a Republican play ball hmm. on a Democratic president's idea was a thing in 1964. And, de- and the black vote was in play in the same exact percentages that the Hispanic vote is in play now. Well, it was in play until Mitt Romney and, and Donald Trump came along. You still had a good 33, 35% of the black vote that you could put in play, that even Nixon could get. And by the way, Nixon is the administration that sued Donald Trump for housing administration. So you had still a certain amount of liberalism in the Republican Party. It was the Nixon administration that sued him for, for not letting black people live in his place. It's okay. It was Nixon who did busing, who completed that project. So you, you still had a black vote that was in play. Even 30% of it being in play gives black people real power. One of the reasons African Americans don't have a lot of power is it's 90-10 and Democrats think, we got you. We don't have to even come to your community until six weeks before the election. And it's partly because the Republican Party is so venal in its discussions of, of, of African-American life. The only time that- Repub- You mean to tell me you don't live in hell? I, I crawl through the muck and zombies to get to work every day. And black people are also zombies. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the way that Republicans talk about black communities, only about crime, only about criminal justice. It's always crime, 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 crime. Even the way the media talks about black people, it's always crime. It's never anything else. What about environmental justice, which somebody asked about earlier? Flint is a race issue. You could talk about race and environment. You could talk about you know, all the small businesses. That's how, if you want Republicans, you want black people, go get small business people. They want tax cuts. They like tax cuts. But the Republican Party has become so hostile sounding because it has married itself to right-wing talk radio, to the Rush Limbaugh style of communication about race. And so because the Republican Party has embraced the Limbaugh style, They've become so vocally hostile that even when the Paul Ryans of the world say they want to try, they also say they want to cut food stamps, they want to do these things. So black people are just not down with them. And they're losing, you know, so, so I think for African Americans, the, my, my, the answer to your question is yes, the Democrats completely take black people for granted. It reduces black power. But at the moment, there's nowhere for the black vote to go. 
it's the Democrats who had Barack Obama. Where were they going to go? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's Donald Trump on the other side. And Trumpism lives over there now. There's nowhere to go. Black people did not become Democrats because they liked Democrats. Democrats were segregationists and racists. They became Democrats in the South because it was the only way to have power. If you didn't register as a Democrat, you couldn't vote because all of the elected offices were Democrats. The only party that really existed in Mississippi, Alabama, they, was the Democrats. The Republicans were a non-entity. So being a Republican was a waste of your time. So they fought to be Democrats, even though they were being killed for trying to be Democrats, because that was where the power was. The Republican Party being a viable option is a matter of self-interest for black people. If it becomes this small, hardened, only white, angry party, it gives black people nowhere to go. Uh, on your second, so I think that you know there's an interest in reviving that party's fortunes with people of color, but no one can do that for Republicans but themselves. Um, as, as far as your second question, I think the media has utterly failed all of you. I am not. I am an unabashed critic of my profession. I think that we we are not. We are not able to put our arms around policy as, a, as something we can talk about that is entertainment. And so policy gets thrown out the window. It's partly because of the candidates. Donald Trump is not exactly putting out white papers, right? Um, well, <laughs> I want to be in it. But, you know, we just are trying to figure out how to deal with him and just trying to figure out what to how to deal with this mess. And what is coming across the screen is just so mesmerizing in a bad way. And I think we haven't dug in. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton's given tons of policy speeches. We have to put them on TV. So I think the media it, it has to do much, 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 much better. But it's hard because you guys, the viewers, tell us what they want to see. Everyone screams at me, why do you guys put Donald Trump on TV? Because y'all watch it. Because if we take him off TV, y'all change the channel. We're responding to a marketplace that is demanding to see more circus, more through more shoes getting thrown, right? The, the Real Housewives wouldn't be ratchet if y'all didn't like it ratchet. We watch it, right? I watch the Braxtons. I don't even when they fight, right? So it's partly the marketplace is is losing its its thirst for quality, and so politics is just going where everything else is going, ratchet. So, uh, <laughs> I, unfortunately, we have to. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> well, I, I have one last. Uh, I have one last question for you. In on that on that note, yes. which is uh, this weekend, I was reading your book, and I also was finishing Colson Whitehead's novel, The Underground Railroad, and then I watched the debate Sunday night. <laughs> and you wanted and to get in the Underground Railroad. And I escape. just kind of like <laughs> I woke up just demoralized mm -hmm. about kind of the weight of our history and the reality of Trump's candidacy. And I'm wondering where, where you go for hope. <laughs> That's a really good question. Yeah, when, I, when it's too much for me, um, I basically binge watch non-politics TV. So I watch a lot of Walking Dead, um, Greenleaf. I just another warm and friendly season. show. Yeah, Hopefully and it's all Walking sort of Dead. negative. Yeah, no, I I try to just get off uh, political TV sometimes and just watch um, something else like Queen Sugar. Obsessed, obsessed. It's so good. Um, but I don't have a lot of hope. I have to. I'm sorry. I hate to be negative and cynical, but I think we are in a downward spiral because we are really two countries. You know, Abraham Lincoln kept two countries together. He didn't keep a country together. He kept two countries together. We, we, we were a slave republic uh, that, that, that disgorged slavery without having a single moment's backward thought. We immediately turned ourselves into Captain America and forgot that the villain in these comics is also us. We can't face our own villainry, so we can't change. So does that mean we need a kind of national reckoning? Yeah. I mean, even South Africa gave this experiment where my understanding was they did these truth and reconciliation commissions and only black people showed up. Right? So people resisted. I remember going to Germany as a teenager, and I was really kind of impressed by the confrontational way they approached their own history. Germans' own grandparents were Nazis. They confront it. Right? They don't hide Nazism un, under a bushel. They don't pretend that they are these heroic figures that have never done anything wrong. They confront who they are really in the mirror. Americans just will not 
do it. Do you, do you feel like that's a lost opportunity for Barack Obama? He tried. I mean, look, Barack Obama didn't want to do it. He came in thinking, listen, I have to put, you know, I have to do this. I, I mean, you know, I write about it in the book, this ecumenical style of race talk is the way you can become a national political figure. You have to basically wave your black person magic wand and say, look at me, racism is over. And that is the way that people say you are helping race relations because you are basically the human excuse for everyone to feel good about themselves. And that that's the only kind of communication that can make you a, a viable national figure. Look at every black Republican, how they talk about race. They talk about how great America is. Look at me, the opportunity, only in America. That's how you can become viable. And he did that. And then he gets in, and suddenly his friend from Harvard is getting arrested by a cop, and all of a sudden he's black. And all of a sudden he starts talking black talk. And all of a sudden he says something completely obvious, which is that if Trayvon Mar if he had a son, he'd look like Trayvon Martin. Well, duh, Trayvon Martin is black, right? But even saying that sets off his poll numbers crater with white Americans instantly. Literally the polls taken within days of him saying that Trayvon Martin will plunge his, his approval ratings with white Americans. That's not what people want to hear. They feel he's being divisive. Talking about race is now racism in the minds of a lot of Americans. They think just bringing it up is racism. So he, he couldn't have done much more, especially since he wanted to get reelected. So he could only start doing that race talk in January of 2013. And I think since then he's over and over tried to use his rhetorical skill, but he's already lost 40 something percent of the country who there's nothing he could say. He could say, I just saved your mother from a burning building and they'd say to hell with you. He just, he's lost a part of the country because he became black. He became racial. He's a race man to a lot of people. So unfortunately, we had to have the first black president in order to, to lance the boil, in order to show who we were. And I think Donald Trump is sort of a good thing because it shows us who was hiding under there. You know, there was this Trumpism lurking around and you only knew about it if you happened to go on vdare.com or Stormfront or read Breitbart <coughs> or listen to Right Wing Talk Radio, all of which I do because I want to know what's out there. If you listen to right-wing talk radio, you knew Trump was coming. But Americans won't confront it. And so I think Trump is making us all confront who's in the mirror. And I think that's a good thing. And I think you needed both Obama and Trump in order to do that. And what do you anticipate from Hillary Clinton presidency? I think Hillary Clinton is going to be pushed on race in a way Barack Obama never was. I think that black communities are about to bring the bill. So remember when Donald, remember when um, um, uh, we've had a fine meal and now here comes the bill. Um, so. A lot of people forget a couple. One of the things that annoys me, and I don't know, it probably annoys you too, Khalil. And when people talk about King, is they sort of postcardize King. So postcard King says, "I have a dream," right? Real King says, "America wrote black people a bad check," right? Postcard King is revered. Real King was less well regarded than George Wallace in the Gallup poll. Was hated. Right? Postcard King says, I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. Real King, in the same speech, said, boycott Coca-Cola. <laughs> he literally came in there and he said, boycott every business in Memphis that won't serve black people. That's what that speech actually was. Like, he was literally saying, we are going to boycott, we're going to economically destroy you if you don't give us our rights. So, you, so right, Real King and Postcard King are just like two totally different people. They're totally different people. Like, you got to read the whole speeches because the little postcard is not Dr. Martin Luther King at all right so 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 um i've probably like gone off on a tangent but anyway the, the reality is i think we do need this sort of confrontational hillary style clinton. oh hillary clinton so hillary clinton is the person who in when in the bad check scenario of king where he says america has written the negro a bad check i think hillary clinton is the person who's going to get that bill because black people are the reason she's the nominee bernie sanders would have been the nominee if, if because he had the momentum she had black people She's the nominee. She gets the nomination because of black people, black women in particular, 72% turnout. Highest turnout of any group is that black women. They're the most reliable. We are the most reliable voters in America. Vote more than any white group, anybody. Black women, not 72%. Thank you. So she is going to owe African-Americans. And unlike Barack Obama, she's not black. So she's not going to get the protection of saying, we need to protect you. She's going to have to pay the bill. So I think you're going to see a lot more progress on direct racial issues. I think there's a chance to do criminal justice reform because I think Republicans also want to do that because they want something, want some victory they can say that it was bipartisan. Um, she can do some stuff on immigration that Obama can't do. She's to the left of him on it anyway. 
Um, so I think, yeah, I think we've, and we are to the left as a country now more than we were. So yeah, I think she has a better chance of actually getting concrete things done. Michael Dyson, his book, um, he writes about that. I think, I think she has a, a shot at getting some real things done. But, and this is the most important thing, communities of color have to ask for it. You have to ask for what you want. The civil rights movement, you know, demanded what they wanted and were a pain in the butt and were hectoring uh, and constantly calling the White House and constantly in their face. And even if they got something, they said, no, we want more. We got one bill, we want a second bill, we want a stronger bill. You have to push, you know, and you have to push in, inside of politics. And that's the only way it's going to work. That is a fine closing note about the moral imperative we all have to demand more. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.